welcome back to Nighty Night with Rabia Chaudhary. Bedtime stories to keep you awake. I'm DJ Lubell, the show's producer. Tonight's tale teaches us the family that stays together slays together. Please enjoy All in the Family. I was alone when I read online that they found Mr. Williamson's body washed up on the riverbank. My parents told me it was probably an accident, but I know the truth, because I saw the pictures. Keith T. in Algebra was the one who found the body. Him and his older brother came across it while they were sneaking beers in the woods. I think they probably took the pictures before they even called for help, and he didn't even warn me before he showed me some close-ups. Prank the new kid, I guess. Have you ever seen a dead body before? They don't look right. Sometimes when I was little, I tried to sneak down into the kitchen in the middle of the night, you know, to get some food or watch TV or something. But before I even got down the stairs, I could just tell my dad was still up, that I was probably going to get caught. You know what I mean, right? Like when someone is around, you can kind of sense it. I'm not even talking about something super obvious, like hearing them listening to music or walking around. I mean, even almost subconsciously picking up on their breathing. When you're alive, you just kind of, I don't know, make noise, burn energy. But when someone's dead, it's like, I don't know, a statue, a mannequin, like finding an old stuffed animal left outside, slowly turning black as they grow mold and absorb dirt. The face is the worst part. Mr. Williamson's jaw was not just hanging open, it was hanging completely off to one side. His tongue was rolling out of his broken jaw, all swollen, and his skin was somehow both colorless but blue, drowned and bloated. His left eye was missing, and the socket was just like the small bowl containing murky black water. And while he's showing me the pictures on the phone, Keith is smirking, probably thinking, oh, she didn't see that coming, with that tacky monogrammed vape pen clenched in his teeth. But I didn't blink. I refused to give him the satisfaction. From behind me, I heard another girl shriek at the photo and just run off. Keith dropped the phone and then he just laughed with pride. While he was walking away, one of his little cohorts, Ryan something, nudged his buddy and said, Dude, you can't just show people stuff like that. They're going to freak out. <sighs> his cover man. Before they turned the corner, though, I could hear Keith's reply, his go-to. Not my problem. Oh, but it would be. When we moved to Hackettstown, my parents insisted things would get better, that we would stay longer, I'd make more friends, I wouldn't be the constant stranger, the forever new kid. They said the same thing every time we moved anywhere. We were practically migratory, moving back and forth across the country constantly, just picking at whatever scraps we could find. Back when I believed them, it kind of hurt when inevitably we repacked to move to some other tiny, anonymous place, but these days I'm almost used to it. They're my parents. They're supposed to insist that things are going to be better this time, that time, next time. And I'm the kid, so I'm supposed to smile and say, okay, mommy, okay, daddy. We're really just playing the role of a happy family. But we're getting better at it. If only they would stop getting us chased out of town. My parents are artists. Really controversial, taboo stuff. A lot of statues and paintings, lots of religious symbolism, stuff like that the kinds of things small-town America never appreciates. 
A lot of it is actually about me. I don't think they ever expected to have a kid. My dad told me once that he didn't ever want to become a father because he felt like humans were destroying the planet. He's not some hippie, by the way. I just think his mind believes he's being practical. It is, after all, getting a lot hotter, you know. My mom says they fell madly in love when they were around my age. She really romanticizes their first projects together. They were chased out of their hometown for some art installation in the town square, and they were edgy right from the start. They told me once that they hold up a mirror to America, the gun-toting, Bible-thumping hypocrites. They like to paint Bible verses on the police station, splash blood on church steps, stuff like that. You'd think having a kid would make them slow down and just live a more normal life, but instead, I'm just along for the ride. At some point, they always end up pushing it too far, and before you know it, we're on to the next place. Some little weird town that nobody's ever heard of. Rinse and repeat. Congratulations to them and their art, but Christ, it is exhausting. My first day at Hackestown High School, I clocked all the familiar types of kids. It was the first time I ever set foot in HH, but ultimately, they all kind of feel the same. School buses out front, loud, obnoxious kids laughing, screaming, running through the halls, some bored teacher announcing a mediocre lunch on the loudspeaker, bells ringing, popular girls shooting videos of themselves and popular boys pretending not to notice, and on and on and on. When you're trying to make friends, you stick out like a sore thumb. And when you realize everyone at one school is basically the same as everyone in the last school, you let them all blend in together in your head, and you end up kind of floating under the radar. Anyway, I know the ultimate truth. Everyone here is meaningless, no matter how important our lives seem to us at the time. We're all carbon copies. These guys, well, they're just my temporary classmates until I'm shuttled off to the next place. No connections, no staying power. They're like the extras in the background of a movie. Like the fake people living their fake lives in some video game. In other words, they're basically not even real. Mr. Williamson was the first person to really pay attention to me, and it was horrible. Talk about a nobody. Nothing to say, zero personality. I mean... I gotta say, his corpse is honestly not at all that different than when he was alive. Ugh, what a horrible thing to say, but anyway. Mr. Williamson did the routine you see in the old shows online. He made me stand up in front of the class and introduce myself to people, even though I told him I did not want to. How about three fun facts about yourself? I hate you, I hate everyone in this room, and I can't wait to leave. Alright, okay, fine. I didn't actually say that, obviously, but... I went ahead and said something about being into true crime and writing and just praying he'd let me sit down and hide. What's that? He asked with mock surprise. Crime? Maybe I'll have to enroll you in my Sunday school class too. Church and state, asshole, I muttered. I just couldn't help myself. Uh, what's that? He chuckled at me. Straight up laughed at me in front of everybody. Was he insane? Could you speak up, honey? I don't even think the front row here could make that out. Again, that chuckle. I looked back to see Mr. Williamson leaning on a golf club, some lame prop he kept in class. I guess he thought it made him seem sophisticated or something. So proud of himself. So condescending and arrogant. What a rude, embarrassing little man. Listen, I know myself. I'm comfortable with who I am, but can you imagine if I wasn't? Brand new to town, alone, maybe hoping, dying, dreaming of making friends. And then here's this jackass, Mr. Williamson, heckling a teenage girl, struggling to open up in front of the room. An adult. How damaging would that be? Thankfully, I mean, I'm not that shy or anything, but can you imagine if I was? So, I told him to stop laughing at me. 
I called him a hypocrite and a bullshitter. He told the principal I screamed it at him. And the principal told my parents that I was starting my HH career on thin ice. What a thin ego. He couldn't handle a teenage girl pushing back. Pathetic. And then came the morning that there was a guidance counselor running Mr. Williamson's class. She told us that there had been an accident, or maybe he jumped. A ringing in my ears just drowned out the rest, but it had to do something with the local bridge. I don't know it for sure, but it felt like the class was looking at me to see how I'd react. Listen, I'm not happy he's dead. Like, I'm not. Just because you're an asshole to kids, that's not some justification that you should die. That's insane. I even told that to my parents. I'm sure on some level they heard me. Dad was sitting in the living room, flipping through some local Facebook group, undoubtedly picking fights with the local yokels, as he called them. And my mom was lost in painting some mishmash of birds and Bibles, always working on their art. They'd pick this town clean in no time, I was sure. As for Mr. Williamson, neither of them was really concerned. We barely discussed it at all, which was pretty typical. So I ate my dinner and I got in bed, but I couldn't get those photos out of my head. I even dreamt about it. Mr. Williamson, dead and decaying, leading me to the front of his class, his rotting hand holding me by the elbow. I could feel his skin loosely sliding around under his wet palm. I could smell the putrid red and black fluid draining from his open, disconnected jaw, which was unattached but somehow still smiling. He was dead, but he questioned me at the front of the class each night, every night when I had this nightmare who I was, where I'm from. He wanted to know about my family, my parents' names. He wanted me to come over for dinner, know everything about us. He was picking at me like a buzzard. He wanted to punish me again and again in front of all the kids in the class every single night in my dreams. These kids just sitting and watching me, dozens of anonymous looking faces, and Mr. Williamson just enjoyed making a show out of me. He was getting back at me from beyond the grave for criticizing him were pushing back, and I, I would just try and try to get out of his grip, push against his squelching, sunken chest. I would push and push and feel the loose water and rotten organs roil inside him like waves, and then finally he would tip back, and I would stare into those eyes, rolling, bulging in shock and fear, pointing in opposite directions, coated in algae and scum, milky with death, and finally he would fall away down and down, and the class could see that I pushed him. And it felt like forever, and maybe even years, but eventually his body would splash into this pool of water, only to bob back up to the surface with a gleaming cross on his bloated chest. But he wasn't the only one. In my dreams, more faces bubbled up around him, staring to enjoy my horror. Always that same gaping expression of judgment, and then I'd be standing on this bridge, and behind me there would be a packed van ready to take off to the next town, just to take me off into the night. If you're enjoying Nighty Night, bedtime stories to keep you awake, we would really appreciate it if you would follow us and leave us a rating and review. It really helps us out. Thank you. Can we talk about notifications for a second? Because, I mean, who actually leaves those sounds on anymore? Well, 
except for that one. That is another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your own business. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from everywhere. Whether your thing is vintage, teas, or recipes for ghee, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of your favorite businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you can create an online store in your vibe, discover new customers, and grow the following that keeps them coming back. Shopify has all the sales channels sorted, so your business can keep growing, from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to their 24-7 support and free libraries full of educational content, Shopify's got you every step of the way. Look, I have been an entrepreneur for a long time. I know how hard it is to start a business, especially nowadays with so much global competition, but that's why Shopify's got you. If you've got a dream business you've been dying to start, the simplicity of Shopify will help you make it come true. Shopify makes selling simple so you can put yourself and your ideas out there. Whether your thing is making eBooks or earrings, Shopify makes your success possible. Sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash night all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash night to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash night. On a winter night in a small community near Denver, Colorado, Jim Matthews arrived home late. He expected to find his 12-year-old daughter who'd been dropped off after a Christmas concert. But when he called out, hi, Janelle, the house was eerily silent. His daughter's shoes were on the floor, but she was gone and it would be 35 years before she would be found dead. After the discovery of Janelle Matthews' body in 2019, the police turned their attention to a man who had told law enforcement years ago that he knew something, but they had dismissed him. The man did seem obsessed with the case, but is that all he was, a true crime fanatic or a killer? Now a jury will decide if Janelle's murder was hiding in plain sight the entire time. Wondery and Campside Media's podcast Suspect is back for a second season with a story that attempts to separate one man's true crime obsession from a motive for murder. Hey, Prime members, listen to the Amazon Music exclusive podcast Suspect, Vanished in the Snow, in the Amazon Music app. Download the app today. The dream kept returning, and some nights I woke up while it was still dark and I just couldn't get back to sleep because of that face. And eventually, my dad's door would tell me it was time for school, time to get up. I already knew. I didn't need these dreams to tell me that any promise that Hackettstown would be a happy or healthy place to start over or put down some roots was already squashed. It was as dead as Mr. Williamson. Evidently, I wasn't the only one who couldn't stop thinking about him. Whenever someone dies, I don't really think it matters who it is, everyone who knew them is in shock for, let's say, two weeks, a month tops. But then you start getting back in shape, getting back on track, back to work, whatever. You don't just cancel everything forever. Life goes on. But you never forget that dead face. It was in a gym class one day when Abby, this popular girl, this little high school celebrity, came up to me out of nowhere. She was the girl behind me who shrieked when Keith showed me the photos in the first place. I felt like I already knew what she was going to say. I can't stop thinking about that picture. I didn't know what she wanted from me. Did she expect me to somehow make it easier for her to digest what goddamn Keith decided to burden us with? The best I could summon was, yeah, me too. It turned out that Abby really was something of a little local celebrity. 
the daughter of the sheriff of Hackettstown was suddenly confiding in me things that gave me a pit in my stomach. When Mr. Williamson's body was found at the bank of the river, apparently the first assumption was that he'd taken his own life. Hackettstown is a small place. There's just not a lot of crime. No one suspected murder. But in what evidently counts for dinner conversation in Abby's house, her dad told her something interesting he'd learned from the medical examiner. They firmly believed that Mr. Williamson had indeed gone over the side of the bridge, but that he was dead way before he even hit the water. Someone murdered Mr. Williamson, Abby whispered, and I bet we can find out who. My plans to float under the radar were now clearly in jeopardy. I was in serious risk of having to socialize. How insane is it that Mr. Williamson was such a dick to you and then he turned up dead? Abby had cornered me at lunch for a third day in a row. She was relentless. Hey, you said you're into true crime. You said that yourself. Wouldn't it be incredible if we solved his murder? Yeah, it would be amazing, all right. Abby laid out her plans. Turns out the girl I took for the prom queen wasn't interested in the small town high school monarchy at all. The sheriff's daughter had seen an opportunity. Yes, the corpse picture had stuck in her mind's eye, but not only because of how grotesque it was, Mr. Williamson's murder was about to be the biggest story ever to come out of Hackettstown, a town that barely qualified to have a zip code. Come on, how many shitty true crime shows are out there? There are dumbass dudes who just Google murders and then capitalize. We actually knew Mr. Williamson. It probably doesn't even matter if we actually catch the killer. The fact that we investigate it might be a big enough story. Underneath it all, Abby wasn't particularly interested in justice for Mr. Williamson or for the fame of solving the murder. She was into the bigger thing, the meta story that sometimes follows a true crime story the story about the storytellers. Abby wanted to become a hero by pretending to be a hero. High school girls investigating a crime is a big story. Maybe it'll even become a movie. I reminded her that it was probably already a movie. Several, in all likelihood. But then I thought about my dreams again. That murky face looking at me from just below the water. The same van packed with the same boxes carrying me off to a different town full of the same nothingness, the same anti-existence. I thought about it, and then I told her I was in. From the jump, everything was Abby's plan. She wanted to confront Keith. After all, it was him and his brother who found the body, right? They'd taken these pictures that started the whole thing. After school, Abby texted her mom that she was hanging out with some of her usual crowd, and then we started walking. There was no need to say anything to my parents. That's the one benefit of being the child of artists. All this freedom. Complete lack of consequences. But I can't lie, it sure feels like disinterest. I thought of their reaction if they knew what I was doing. They'd finally have to pay attention. The route to Keith's house showed me Abby's version of Hackettstown, and, well, it was kind of beautiful. Neighbors waving as they mowed their lawns in the afternoon sun. A light breeze I hadn't bothered to pay attention to or enjoy was suddenly a welcome atmosphere for walking with, I don't know, my friend. I could not have been less surprised when Abby slowed to a stop in front of a gaudy McMansion. Some part of me had thought that a scumbag like Keith had to live in some dilapidated house with broken shutters, but nah, it was even worse. He was born rich. 
We could hear music blasting from the backyard, so Abby and I walked down a tidally landscaped cobblestone path to where the ultimate badass was smoking with his little cronies. Hey, Keith, Abby called over the music, getting the attention of, of course, several of the boys and definitely some college-age guys who looked like they had not showered in weeks. Oh, Abby Yates, and uh, sorry, never bothered to learn your name. The hell you doing here? Oh, we just wanted to talk to you about those pictures, Keith. Keith and one of the older guys, probably his brother, laughed. I noticed one of the guys looked down at his shoes uncomfortably. Your dad made me delete them abs. But we can show you something else, though, some loser added to mild chuckles. Abby, who was impressively ignoring the other guys like they didn't exist, explained that we didn't need the photos. That we just had some questions about when Keith found the body in the first place. It was then that that kid Ryan swooped in and urged Keith not to talk about it. Why was it that sometimes people voluntarily cover for the assholes of the world? What are you, his lawyer or something? You protecting him from something? Abby had evidently hit the right nerve, and Keith, to prove he didn't need protecting, pocketed his tacky inscribed vape and started walking over to a small guest house, waving at us and his brother to follow him. In a single glance, Abby communicated the risks involving following known idiots into their rich parents' bungalow, but I could tell she was conflicted by her intense interest in learning more about Mr. Williamson's death. Without a word, Keith closed the door behind us and walked over to a small refrigerator in the corner, asking us if he wanted something to drink. Neither of us was interested in beer, but Keith and his brother snapped some cans open, and I could see piles of empty bottles and garbage littering every corner. Apparently, the brothers had just taken over their parents' guest house and turned it into their little apartment. I could just imagine pushover parents justifying everything these guys did in here. Keith leaned back against a tall, thin chest of drawers, crossed his arms, and asked us, What do you want to know? He looked like a poster child for toxic masculinity, a symbol of American excess. Mommy, Daddy, and countless cronies also charmed by his attitude. Anyway, we had them tell us the whole thing. The older brother, Derek, seemingly the second-in-command, surprisingly let Keith take the lead. He told us that just beyond their backyard was a stretch of woods that they used to play in when they were kids. They still sometimes walk through it, though, smashing bottles and doing whatever destructive things that teen boys like to do. One time, Keith said, they even set fire to a small shed at the edge of the forest. It got out of control, and some men playing golf nearby nearly caught them. But they got away. And then, there's the day they came across something they never expected to see. Derek was the one who saw it first. At first, they thought maybe someone had fallen asleep beside the river. It looked like somebody laying on their side. Their gut instinct was to pretend to be cops and bark out, You there, what do you think you're doing? They thought maybe it would be a homeless man and they'd startle him awake. But instead, the shape on the riverbank didn't even flinch. We basically knew immediately, said Keith. It was a loose definition of immediately, but I could see it so clearly in my mind's eye. Again, the quiet stillness of the dead. Keith proudly took credit for getting a stick. Well, we had to roll him over, right? He was justifying his behavior, as if he was somehow not the one responsible for poking the dead guy with a branch out of morbid curiosity. Abby was disgusted. God, Keith, what the hell would people think if... Not my problem, he interrupted. Never his problem. Until that whip Derek nudged, Tell him what you did with the rock. Whatever happened with the rock, Keith didn't want to share it with us. He shot a look at his brother to shut him up, and Derek complied. 
As the story dragged on, I kept waiting for the part where Keith or Derek would reveal their hidden humanity. Instead, Keith rambling on and on about taking picture after picture with the pathetic, bloated corpse, almost as if reliving a wonderful memory. I had Mr. Williamson in goddamn fifth grade. Couldn't wait to get to high school, but then what happens? He basically follows me there. Derek giggled, blurting out, friggin' creep, from the corner. I almost had forgotten he was there. Abby later told me that Keith and Mr. Williamson fought pretty regularly, a bad combination of two blowhards both determined to get the better of each other. Abby asked, Did you see, like, any, I don't know, defensive wounds on him or anything? Defensive wounds, Keith scoffed. What are you, a reporter now or something? I sensed Abby deflate for just a moment. He had a point. It was kind of a joke for us to be borrowing our detective vocabulary from murder shows and shit. Abby pressed again. Who do you think killed Mr. Williamson? Derek seemed puzzled, but he looked like he was always puzzled. Keith had somewhat sobered up, though. What do you mean? They told us it was an accident. Is that what your dad said, that someone killed him? Suddenly, Keith looked concerned. More than likely, he realized his sarcastic attitude might bring him in for questioning. I wondered again what he'd done with the rock. I could see the gears turning in Keith's mind. So, actually, he started... Without another word, Keith suddenly leaned forward and turned to open a drawer in the chest behind him. Reaching in, he pulled out something small and metallic. It seemed there was something that Keith and Derek hadn't shared with the police. When they first turned over Mr. Williamson's body, he had something clutched in his right hand. It was a minuscule piece of jewelry. A pin, handmade in the shape of a vulture. Hey ladies, if you have been experiencing symptoms you don't understand and you don't know where to start, Everly Well is committed to listening and supporting your journey towards better health and wellness. The Everly Well Women's Health Test measures 11 biomarkers known to play a role in your overall health and wellness and checks for any abnormal levels that may be keeping you from feeling your best. Everly Well is digital healthcare designed for you, all at an affordable and transparent price. With over 36 at-home lab tests, you'll be able to choose the tests that make the most sense for you to get the answers you need, like the woman's health test or a food sensitivity test. Everly Well also has high-quality vitamins and supplements to support your overall health. Choose from a variety of options, including vitamin D3 and omega-3 fish oil. Here's how it works. Everly Well ships products straight to you with everything needed in one package. To take your at-home lab test, just collect your sample and use the included prepaid shipping label to mail your test back to a certified lab. Your physician-reviewed results get sent to your phone and device in just days. And then you can share the results with your primary care physician to help guide next steps. It is so simple. Over 1 million people have trusted Everly Well to support their health and wellness goals, and you should too. Now, you know, once you pass your 40s, things definitely change in your body. So what I wanted to find out was what was going on with my metabolism. So I took the Everly Well Metabolism Test, which measures your free testosterone, your cortisol, and your thyroid-stimulating hormone, the TSH levels. And these are the levels that will help you figure out whether or not you're in your normal ranges. By measuring the levels of each hormone, you will better understand what's happening with your body composition, your weight, and your energy levels. And now for listeners of the show, Everly Well is offering a special discount of 20% off at-home lab tests at everlywell.com slash night. That's everlywell.com slash night for 20% off your next at-home lab test. everlywell.com slash night. Days later, Abby was still obsessing over the pen. 
I'm telling you, he must have ripped it off whoever attacked him. It had occurred to me, and I told her as much, that we didn't even know for a fact that it wasn't an accident. At best, Abby had heard her dad talking about something the medical examiner had said. Maybe she misheard. Maybe he was wrong. Who knew? Wasn't it way more likely that Mr. Williamson's death was either self-inflicted or an accident? For a while, Abby agreed, and then the investigation was opened up to the public. Kids were watching it on their phones just before school one morning. I could only pick up snippets. First, the sheriff's office, then local teacher, and finally, believed to have been murdered. Every class that day inevitably devolved into a brainstorming session full of conspiracy theories. I heard he was having an affair with Mr. Muller's wife. Jessica's dad told her that Mr. Williamson had a bad gambling habit once. Well, one time I stayed late and saw Mr. Williamson getting into a fight with that creepy janitor. It was a circus. I heard several kids ask each other, who do you think is next? As if Jack the Ripper was on the loose. Rumors started that Keith hadn't actually deleted his photos after all, but instead was showing them to people as long as he promised not to tell anybody. He had also started telling anybody who would listen that someone had robbed him and was harassing him. But guys like Keith just thrive on attention no matter what kind. At lunch, I spotted Abby craning around looking for someone. We locked eyes and she made her way over only to be interrupted by the skinny kid holding his cell phone out to her like a microphone. She listened momentarily as he said something to her that I couldn't quite make out, and then she scrunched up her face, pushed past him, and eventually sat down across from me. What was that? I asked. Ugh, friggin' Josh Newman just told me he's doing a podcast about the murder. She leaned in, lowering her voice, adding, We've got to move faster. After school, Abby asked me to come with her to the police station to talk to her dad. I wasn't exactly a fan of the idea, but I was really enjoying having someone who called me a friend. It was just before we pushed the doors open that I finally asked her, why me? Here was Abby Yates, popular, good-looking, suddenly turning her back on the cool crowd to creep around with the freaky new kid. I asked her why she picked me to do all this investigating and plotting and stuff, and she looked back at me confused. Because I saw you, she finally explained. When Keith was showing those pictures around, I saw the way you looked at them, and I just, it, it just made me want to be more like you. I couldn't imagine what she meant. Abby told me that everyone else had immediately covered their eyes or walked away, but then there I was, standing almost rooted to the spot. She said I clearly refused to let Keith get any satisfaction from my reaction, that I was defiant, strong, tough. It was not at all how I ever felt about myself, but as we questioned her father, the goddamn sheriff of the goddamn town, I started to feel the way she told me I was. He didn't see us coming. Abby took us straight into his office. Sheriff Yates spoke to Abby as if she were somewhere between a toddler and a nine-year-old. Beside me, I watched in amazement as Abby transformed into her father's perfect little girl, playing up a little innocence, some naivety, but ultimately getting nothing we hadn't already guessed. According to her father, we had nothing to worry about. He told us the police already had a few leads without giving us any details and that he was going to get to the bottom of it. Our interview with the sheriff was cut short when a call came in about some disturbance out on the main street. A stern-looking woman told Abby's dad about something painted on the side of an old church. Crap, I thought. My parents. Possibly their best-timed art installation ever. 
With apologies, suddenly Abby and I found ourselves alone in her father's office, and wordlessly, Abby flipped open his laptop, typed, hit enter, and suddenly we were looking at the very messy desktop of the Hackettstown Sheriff. I asked and received immediate confirmation that this was not the first time Abby had sifted through her dad's files. The file labeled BW brought us all kinds of information. They had a lot. It turned out Mr. Williamson had been in debt from gambling, and he did fall from the bridge, though it didn't appear to be where he'd actually been murdered. An email or two explained the urgency with which the police needed to locate the crime scene. And then, of course, there was a backup of good old Keith's photos again, coupled with a small note file documenting various crimes KT had committed, from setting fires to graffiti. Most enlightening were the details of the few run-ins between Keith and Mr. Williamson in the past. True to Keith's word, he'd been putting up with Williamson since the fifth grade, and he'd been suspended by the teacher no less than three times. He'd even thrown a punch at the teacher on one occasion, and with it came the threat of expulsion. Abby clicked on the photo album as my wheels spun. Looking at the dead man's face again, I thought of Keith and him poking him with the stick. And then I saw it. Right there, clutched in the corpse's hand, I could just make out the gleaming metal of the vulture pin. But there was also something else. It wasn't in every picture, but I saw it in a couple of them, bobbing in the water at the body's feet. A small, blood-stained golf tee. That night, my parents were in rare form. Hey, baby bird, did you see? My dad had a fire in his eyes. He was really enjoying himself. It was family night. Mom drove, looking content. She always felt better when the game escalated. It was like a pressure release for her. Thoughts and prayers, no one cares. The hypocrite has been baptized, she whispered, pointing at the phrase she'd come up with, now emblazoned and dripping paint across the side of the church. We grabbed some burgers and parked by the church to watch the local yokels fuss and fume with their artwork. They really came out of the gate strong this time. I estimated we'd be run out of town by the end of the week. And then I thought about Abby, the first person I didn't want to say goodbye to. Mom, Dad, I finally gathered the courage to speak. I think you made a huge mistake. On the wall below the text, my father had painted Mr. Williamson, smiling. It was a pretty good likeness, too. Dad was talented. I had to give him that. Bill Williamson was painted face up in a pool of blood, left eye a black hole, and in the distance was a bridge and a small building with a prominent cross perched on top. And I saw down in the far corner an abstract little bird of prey watching the whole thing. That's when I came up with the end game. That night, my parents and I ran an important errand, and then I called Abby to talk. Yes, about the murder, and of course about the crime scene. I told Abby I worried the killer would have just burned any evidence by now. Maybe they'd never catch the killer. But then, after that, we just talked about nothing at all. Like real, actual friends. Before bed, and for the first time, I told my mom and dad that I didn't want to move again. I wanted to stay to really put down roots. The next day, Abby wasn't in class. Before I could find out why, I ran into Keith. What do you want, freak? I just jumped right in. What did you do with the rock? He looked as if I had reached out and punched him. So I asked him again. Looking around, Keith checked to see if anyone had heard what I asked him. He smiled nervously to some girls by the gym door. 
He warned me with a glare, but it gave me the opening I needed. If he didn't want to tell me, I would just have to ask even louder. Maybe even tell Abby's father to ask himself. Keith silently urged me to follow him, a look of pure fury on his face. He really didn't like being challenged. Do you have any idea what could happen to me if people found out what I did? I felt the adrenaline coursing through my body. And then Keith told me the entire story. That he used the stick not only to roll the corpse over, but also to take out his aggression when he saw who it was. Man, I just kept hitting him. The last time I saw him, he threatened to have me expelled if I didn't pay him off. William's gambling and Keith's parents' money. Add in Keith's anger issues and well... And then I picked up the rock and I threw it right in his goddamn face. I could almost hear the crack and the snap in my head. I could see the jaw swing loose on one side. I moved one finger in my pocket and hit stop on the phone recording just before Keith added, but I didn't kill him. The first words out of Abby's mouth when she suddenly showed up at lunch were, we did it. I can't believe it, but we did it. She said it would all be on TV soon. Forget TV, it was a live performance. Abby's father, the sheriff, imposing and stern, flooded into the school, flanked with officers whose job we had done ourselves. And there, in front of everybody, was Keith in handcuffs, a mixture of disbelief and childish fear on his face. I think I saw him cry. Abby had evidently thought about what I said on the phone the night before. When I told her I was afraid of the killer burning the evidence, her mind went right to the shed on the edge of the woods the one that Keith and his brother Derek set on fire by the golf course. She apologized profusely for not taking me, but she told me she couldn't resist peeking through the shed's broken windows on the way to school. She had not planned to find what she found. Abby showed me pictures on her phone of the small, burned-out shed, tilting at almost a 45-degree angle, and there inside, what people would call the crime scene. Williamson's golf club bent in the middle, and a vape pen with the letters KT engraved on the side. Evidence that Williamson and Keith were meeting in a suspicious place. Couple that with my recording of Keith admitting to bludgeoning Williamson, and it would undoubtedly be enough for everyone to agree that the local bad boy was worse than they ever thought he could be. And that's more or less exactly how it went. Keith's brother Derek was assumed to have been involved, though of course their parents insisted their babies could do no wrong. Shows would eventually be made about the crime, Likely a circus of the trial, too. We were done, though. Abby and I handed over what we had and washed our hands of the rest. There was satisfaction enough in seeing it come to a close. No longer assumed to be a gentle princess, Abby's reputation grew further, as did her popularity, but so did everyone's respect for her. And my parents agreed to cool off for as long as they could. For now, I'd be staying in town, though I knew it couldn't last forever. But we felt like heroes, like detectives, my friend and I. It was weeks later when Abby asked the question, What do you think was up with the vulture pen? I told her we might never really know. It could have just been something that was already in the water and got lodged in his hand or something. That seemed to satisfy her, though I worried her gears were still turning about it. That night, my parents could tell something was bothering me, but I could never tell them that there was still a loose thread. See, they don't like loose threads. We had gone over the story again and again the night we ran our errand, the night we placed Williamson's club and Keith's vape pen in the shed. I knew I could nudge Abby in the right direction. 
and like a good friend, she heard exactly what I was saying. I thought of the other faces in my nightmare, the ones bobbing up to the surface beside Mr. Williamson's corpse, the other people who had humiliated me, offended my parents, or just found themselves in the wrong place at the wrong time. I thought of vultures protecting their young, migrating across the country, leaving behind bones picked good and clean, not unlike my parents, my loving, dangerous mother and father. And there in the sea of faces, I could see the accusatory glances, the looks of betrayal from the other girls who I had almost considered a friend until they got too close. But now I had a real friend, Abby Yates, the sheriff's daughter. And if she wanted to solve another murder someday, I'd be more than happy to give her one. Tonight's story, written by Will Rogers, imagines how a serial killer family would operate in today's world. Now look, there's certainly been stories of killer families and horror fiction before. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, for example. But the concept of a family of serial killers is not at all fiction. Just consider the chilling case of the Bloody Benders. In the 1870s, John and Elvira Bender, along with John Jr. and his wife Kate, founded a homestead in Kansas, building a bed and breakfast to give travelers a place to stay the night. Within just a few months, the bodies of nearly a dozen men, women, and children would be found buried on the property. It's believed that many of the victims came to the Bender's house to experience Kate Bender's reputation as a psychic. Spiritualism was all the rage in the late 1800s. Customers were offered a meal and given a seat positioned above a trap door. While one of the female members of the family distracted their victim, either John Sr. or John Jr. would sneak up behind them and bludgeon them to death with a hammer. It was reported that either Kate or Elvira would always slit the victim's throat to ensure their death before dropping them through the trap door. When the benders were discovered, it was first believed that they had killed to steal from wealthy guests, but as more bodies were discovered buried on the property, not all of them rich, it became clear that they had largely killed purely for joy. By far the most shocking detail of the case is that the benders were never apprehended. When a potential victim managed to escape screaming, the jig was up. But before they could be arrested, the bloody benders fled. It's believed that the family members assumed new identities to evade capture. In 1884, a man was arrested in Idaho for murdering someone with a hammer. He died attempting to escape before he could be identified as John Sr. And in 1889, two women were accused of being Elvira and Kate Bender after being tracked down by the daughter of one of their victims. But many were skeptical. As for John Jr., he was believed to have died during the family's escape, though the details of the Bender family seem to vary from telling to telling. Only one thing is for certain. The Bender family was never sufficiently brought to justice. Could the Bloody Benders have gotten away with a horrifying scheme like this today? Our story suggests that a family would need to keep moving to avoid detection. But who knows for sure? Keep that in mind the next time you're looking for a place to stay on vacation. Tonight's tale was written by Will Rogers. 
Nighty Night is executive produced by Robbie Achadri and Colin Thompson. It's produced by DJ Lou Bell. It's edited by Anton Doty and Matt Sewell. It's mixed and mastered by Matt Sewell. Original music by Andrew Gerlicker. Nighty Night is a cast original podcast. Thanks so much for listening to an episode of Nighty Night, bedtime stories to keep you awake. Now that you're spooked to the bone and won't be able to sleep all night, please go ahead and follow, rate, and review us. Sweet dreams.